Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back from the Thanksgiving holiday. And I venture to guess that at least some of us here today don't feel rested this morning. It could be some lingering turkey coma. It could simply be that we don't sleep well. And in fact, studies tell us that over a third of Americans don't sleep well. We don't get enough sleep. This despite the fact that the global sleep economy, which just means the amount of money that is spent on things associated with sleep, pillows, mattresses, medicinal sleep aids, you name it, is, was over $500 billion last year. And you can bet that Americans spend a good chunk of that ourselves, right? But we don't get enough sleep. Rest is still elusive. Or vacations, the vacation economy, the world spent over $5 trillion last year on vacations. Vacations are supposed to be an opportunity to rest, right? To get away from work, the routines of life at home, and find some rest. But I have literally known people who have, I've worked with come back from vacation and have told me, I need a vacation to recover from my vacation. And maybe you have said things like that or at least can identify with it, right? And then, of course, most importantly, there's spiritual rest. And I don't have any uh, dollar figures to throw out about a spiritual rest economy or anything, but if the uh, numerous false religions, religion that exists in the world is any indication, there is a lot of lack of spiritual rest. And maybe some of you can identify with that, even today, that you feel that. Uh, the world knows that something is wrong with the world and with them, but they don't know what to do about it. And there's no rest. There's no peace. And so today, Lord willing, we are going to look at really the definitive passage in Scripture on rest in Hebrews chapter 4. And if you follow along in your Bibles, if you haven't turned there already, I encourage you to do so. And uh, what I hope that we see from this lesson today, this Scripture, is that today, today, to those who hear the gospel with faith, God gives his eternal seventh-day rest you might immediately have a question, what exactly do you mean, God's eternal seventh-day rest? I'm not really familiar with that phrase. And, you know, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked. And I pray that when we are done, you will have a handle on that, and you will appreciate what that is, what that means, and more importantly, how to experience that, how to have that for yourself. So I'm going to read now our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of rest, of entering his rest, still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, 
there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, our passage today really breaks up into three primary sections. First, we have the first two verses, which are really a transition from chapter 3. They are the link, the bridge from particularly three verses, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, which Alan Reeb covered so capably last week and gave us a good foundation for where we will go this week. And then we have in verses 3 through 10 what the theologians would call the indicative. We maybe don't use that word every day, especially not looking at God's word, but it just means the laying out of the facts, the argument. This is what God has to say. And we should be reminded that our author here of Hebrews is, first of all, a wonderful biblical theologian, uh, but he's especially important to remember, he's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? He's not just giving his opinion. This is God's word to us interpreting God's word from the Old Testament. And so he lays out the facts. He makes his case in these eight verses as to what exactly God's rest is. And then, in verses 11, beginning in verse 11, here in the fourth chapter, comes the imperative. Again, just a word meaning the command. God, have, have, now that we have established who God is and what he has done in the previous eight verses, now there commands a response from God's people. How shall God's people respond? And so that comes at the end in the final three verses. So as we dig in here, let's again look to uh, the first two verses fairly briefly as we work at this transition from chapter 3. So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. There is a comparison here, an analogy being made between them and us. And you hear that language, especially in verse 2, them and they constantly. Who are them and they? Them and they are the people who were referred to back in chapter 3. They are particularly the Israelites of the wilderness generation. This is identified in chapter 3, verse 16, those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. They experienced the exodus. That generation of Israelites who came out through the exodus into the wilderness. That is the they. And then the us, of course, is the people to whom he's writing. But we can identify with this as well. For we have a common faith with these first century believers. They had a little bit different experience, perhaps, than most of us. Uh, They probably had come out of Judaism. They probably all had a Jewish, or at least most of them had a Jewish background. And so they are very familiar with the Old Testament in that way. They had lived the Jewish life. They had lived under the law of Moses. And they had come out, they had, just as an exodus of a sense, they had come out into the new covenant and believing in Christ, that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. And so here there is, again, there is a comparison made between us and them, that there is a similarity with that generation 
back coming out of Egypt with the generation here in the first century to whom our author's writing, and again, all the way forward to with us today. There is a similarity, and that is we're told that good news came to us just as to them. They had heard good news. This is the word that can also be translated and often is gospel. This is the gospel. In other words, they heard the gospel, we heard the gospel. We have something in common with them. Now, this does beg an immediate question that how is it that they had heard the gospel back over a thousand years before the coming of Christ at the time of the Exodus? What does that mean, that they had heard the gospel? Well, we should remember that uh, the gospel was announced beforehand. Paul says this about Abraham in Galatians 3, that God gave him the gospel beforehand, that the, the good news. Now, certainly, all was not revealed about the gospel. Uh, the people at the time did not understand every implication, but they understood that God had a promise, that God had made promises to his people and that he would provide redemption for his people. And in particular, in the context here, that there would be rest involved with that, that God had rest for his people. And so he provided pictures of that. And the rest to which the wilderness generation, that that came out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, was promised, that picture of salvation, that picture of rest, was the land of promise. The promised land had really, in a sense, going back to Abraham. Um, God had promised his people that he would provide a place of rest for them. And I think we can all identify with this on some level, maybe not on a national way, but on a, a family or individual level, a place, a place that provides rest. I know that my wife and I were several years in our marriage before we were able to uh, buy our own home, and boy, we looked forward to that, right? We're still there, and it's not much by most people's standards, but it's a place of rest for us. It's home, right? It's a place of our own where we are safe from enemies. Um, no matter what's going on outside, when we come home to come together, we feel a peace and rest together. And this is what the promised land, the land of promise, was to be for the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 12.10, it's spoken of in this way. We read, But when you go over the Jordan into the promised land and live in the land, excuse me, and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety... This is what the land of promise was to provide. This was the picture of rest that it was. And so, unfortunately, as we also read here, that generation did not receive that promise. That in mass, as a group, they lacked something that was required to receive the promise of God. That's faith. They, the, the message, the good news that was announced to them, that the promised land was at hand, was not met with faith on their part. And so they failed to enter. Right there on the precipice, think of all that they had been through. They had come out of Egypt. They had seen God's miraculous works. They had been delivered from slavery. And now here they were into the wilderness. They were ready to go in. Spies had gone into the land and came back with a report about what a goodly land it was, right? And yet they lacked faith. They did not trust Yahweh, the Lord their God, that he would defeat their enemies. And so they failed to enter his rest. 
And so the writer here of Hebrews is addressing these first century Christians and us as well. And he's saying that the promise of entering his rest, of God's rest, still stands. Fear, lest you too miss it. Now you might think, well, I don't understand how this connects because um, we don't have any promise of any real estate over in the Middle East that we are to enter if we just have enough faith. And no, we do not. Uh, what is the link here with this rest? Our author here is going to proceed then in verse, beginning with verse 3 of chapter 4 here and to teach us what this rest is. As it turns out that the promised land was, while it was real rest, just as your home would be a real place of rest, it really wasn't what God was after. It really wasn't all that God had for his people. He had much, much more in mind. The land of promise was just a picture. It was a type that pointed to something bigger and better far beyond itself. So let's proceed here and look at the indicative, the argument, the facts that he's going to lay out. He's going to make a very uh, carefully argue, careful argument from the Old Testament scriptures, which were the Bible to him, the entirety of it. For in verse, beginning with verse 3, we'll read 3, 4, and 5 here together in chapter 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now the key is here that we need to see is that the author of Hebrews is going to take two Old Testament scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, and interpret them together. Psalm 95 and Genesis 2. And Psalm 95 is spoken of my rest. That is God in the first person speaking, saying, my rest, God's rest. And then he says, hmm, in a sense, that sounds familiar. Somewhere God has spoken and spoken about his rest, God's rest on the seventh day. Of course, we know that's from Genesis chapter 2. And those who were hearing this read or reading this epistle would have immediately made the connection. They knew their scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. And so back in Genesis 2, we read this in verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, there is something, and many of you will immediately recognize, there is something that is notably absent from that scripture. If you're familiar with the first six days and how they are presented in in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, you know, would immediately notice there's something absent. I will read the, the account of the first day of creation from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And this sets forth a pattern that will be repeated for each of the six days. God says, and there's spoken word, and there's a creation, and then God declares it good, and then we hear, 
hear the words, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. But then we come to the account of the seventh day. And we simply read that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed that seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work he had done in creation. There was no formula that there is morning and there was evening. There was evening and there was morning. The implication being that it seems that God's seventh day rest is ongoing. It's eternal. That he has entered it. All creation is to abide in him, in it, and it's ongoing. It was ongoing, as we will see, not just in that generation uh, back, or not just in the time of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but it will be ongoing for subsequent generations as well. This is really the linchpin in many ways and the key to our author's argument. And he will build on this, however, so that this, the rest that is spoken of in Psalm 95, which was, again, Alan dealt with us some last week, so I'm not going to go and read there. When God speaks of my rest, that he will deny my rest, he will deny God's rest to that generation in the wilderness. That rest that he speaks of, our author here is saying, is the same rest that God entered on the seventh day. And it's ongoing. It continues. Uh, to build upon this argument, he, con he continues in verse 6, verses 6 and 7. We read, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, what is interesting here is that the author of Hebrews attributes Psalm 95 to David. There's nothing remarkable about this at all. Uh, David, of course, was a prolific psalm writer. We might even just assume, even if we weren't told that David wrote Psalm 95, but we were told explicitly. And what is curious about that fact is that David, of course, lived at least, at least 200 years after the time of the Exodus and wilderness generation. Depends on when we date the Exodus, but anywhere from two to 400 years. And so long after that generation had failed to enter God's rest and had perished in the wilderness, and been under God's curse and had been denied the rest that God offered and provided, David, we are told, in Psalm 95, speaks of God's rest as being available, as being something that could be entered today. That David is writing as a contemporary saying, today is the day, if you hear his voice, to enter God's rest. Don't harden your hearts. Obviously, the rest which the Israelites missed in the wilderness was much more than the land of promise because David proclaimed that that rest was available in his time. And our author is saying that it not only was available then, but it continues. It is available now as I write you. And of course, it is available to us here in the 21st century. It is ongoing. And I should mention that this rest that God has entered on the seventh day, this argument does not imply, does not mean that God is idle 
Jesus tells us that he is working even as God, his father is working in John 5, 17. God continues to be involved in his creation. He upholds it. Uh, he intervenes. He blesses his people. Uh, he continues it. But his creative work is done, and there is real rest into which he has entered. And all that creation is to be at rest in him. Now, if you still aren't convinced that David, in his generation, uh, spoke of God's rest as being present. Uh, consider, our author says, as we move to verse 8, Joshua. Now, Joshua, as you may know, is the same name as Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And so, immediately, the readers or listeners to this epistle would immediately make that connection that when Joshua is spoken of, they could not help but think of Jesus. And here we are told about Joshua. Now Joshua, to remember some biblical history, was at part of that wilderness generation. He was one of the 12 spies that had gone into the promised land to check it out and came back with a good report. And he, along with Caleb, encouraged the Israelites to trust in God, that yes, the people there are fierce, yes, there are enemies there, but it's not going to be a problem, right? God's on our side. Look what he had done to the Egyptians. Right? We can take it. We know that we can take this land. But his entreaties fell on deaf ears, and in mass they rejected that rest, as we have talked about. But Joshua remained faithful, and he would take over for Moses. So about 40 years after God's people refused to enter the land, and were cursed to die in the wilderness. They wandered, and all the adults of that generation died, except for Joshua and Caleb, who had been faithful. And Joshua was appointed to uh, take over for Moses when it came his time to pass. And so in Joshua's time then, about 40 years after the Exodus, they did enter the land. They went in. And so ultimately they did get that rest. In fact, we read in Joshua... Uh, Chapter 21, verse 44, and the Lord gave them rest, that's the Israelites, gave them rest on every side just as he has sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And so ultimately, the promise of God's rest of the land was fulfilled. Israel did enter the land. They just didn't do it 40 years earlier. They did it under Joshua. And yet, despite the fact that they did ultimately get that fulfillment, again, David is speaking of the time to enter God's rest is today. And our author here in Hebrews is saying, it's today. For them, just as it is for us. And so, pardon me. Lost my place. There we go. And so, um, the, our author has now laid out in these last several verses his argument that God's rest, the rest that is spoken of in Psalm 95, is the same rest that is spoken of in Genesis 2. It is God's seventh day rest, and it is ongoing, it is eternal, it is for every generation that all people at all times are commanded and called to receive that rest, to enter that rest. But you have to do it by faith. That's what the wilderness generation missed. They did not receive it by faith. And so they missed the rest. They missed not just the land, 
but, that, but they missed God's eternal rest. The land, ultimately, was just a type of the rest they to, were to receive. And so now he is ready to proceed, to be, draw some conclusions from this in verses 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here, he brings forth the reminder that Sabbath is a type of rest. Of course, the Israelites were commanded to remember the Sabbath day in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. In verses uh, 8 through 11, we read of that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. It's to be a day of rest. And the Lord had been training the Israelites for this for some, a bit of time. If you recall, the Sabbath command really goes back to Exodus 16 and the manna in the wilderness. The people were hungry. They didn't have any food to eat. And God miraculously provided manna six days a week. They were to go out each day and collect the manna that they needed for that day, days one through five. And then on the sixth day, they were to go and collect enough manna for that day and the seventh day because there would be no manna provided on the seventh day. And we are told that initially some went out and didn't find anything. Right? God was training them that to trust him, to trust his provision, to not work, to rest on that particular day. But we see here that the, that Sabbath day, again, is a picture. While it's very real and it was important in its time, it was a picture of the rest that God provides, the eternal rest. For God's seventh day rest, we see in Genesis 2, understood here in Hebrews 4, is eternal. It is God's eternal rest. He has entered it after creation and he still abides in it. And all creation is called to abide in that rest in him. And then in verse 10 here in Hebrews chapter 4, for whoever has entered God's rest, again, that rest, that true rest that only God can provide, his eternal rest, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What are these works? We've talked a lot about God's rest, but what about our rest? What are these works that we rest from when we receive God's rest? It's interesting that the author here is not real specific, right? This is a little bit of ambiguity. There's a little vagueness. And this has resulted in good, sound, biblical, conservative, evangelical theologians giving a little bit different answers uh, to this. And so... Uh, what I think is important to remember here, and uh, we can't help but have a little bit of opinion as we uh, understand and interpret the Bible, that 
there are times like this where maybe the Scripture isn't super clear and that that is intentional because ultimately God's rest is multifaceted. And so there is more than one strict, complete, correct answer to that question. If we think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Salvation itself is very multifaceted. We can look at it from many different angles. It provides many different things, right? And God's rest is a type, is a picture of that salvation that we have in Christ. And so, among the answers, which I believe are correct here for what this means, uh, the works that God's people would rest from as they enter God's rest, are several. And it is important to remember the words of our Lord Jesus himself who invites people to rest. Jesus came offering rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30, we read, these are the words of our Lord, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is this rest that Christ offers? What is the rest for our souls? Again, it is multifaceted. There are many things that we can say, and I want to focus especially on a couple uh, first of all, it is rest from works righteousness. This is something that the original hearers of the epistle here to the Hebrews would have very easily been able to identify with. They, again, probably came from a Jewish background. They were very familiar. They had lived under the Mosaic law and all of the ritual and all the works and all that went with that, all that that entailed, the burden of it, and the temptation in it to turn it into works righteousness, which many did, the Pharisees obviously being an example. And so Christ offers rest from that. We cannot earn our way back to God. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot commend ourselves to God. It is a hopeless exercise. And I have no doubt that there are many of you uh, here who have identified with that, who have come to Christ out of that. Right? have come to Christ out of a religion that gave you, seemingly told you, it gave you the means to commend yourself to God, but in fact led you to nothing but despair. And there was no rest. There's no peace in that. And so Christ invites us. He invited uh, the people in his time, and he invites us to rest from works righteousness. But he also invites us. Uh, he doesn't invite just the Pharisee. Uh, he invites the sinner. He invites the tax collector and the prostitute to come and to find rest. This was different about Jesus, wasn't it? Right? Many of his contemporaries condemned him for his attitude towards sinners. But he invites them to come to him and find rest. There is no rest in sin. No rest at all. Sometimes we forget that. And I'm reminded of a young woman that I've I haven't talked to her for years. For almost two decades, I worked at a nonprofit, and we worked with people with drug and alcohol addictions and got to know many people, and there's some great stories and then some sad stories, right? That's how it is, at least. And there was one woman many years ago that uh, was doing well, uh, staying clean and sober, and I talked with her and asked her how, how life was, how things were going. And she said, it's hard. 
She said, you know, she had a little kid. She's trying to parent a preschooler, balancing childcare with that because it's just her and she's working part-time and she's taking class, cl school classes, trying to get, a, you know, get somewhere in life because she had a rough background. And she uh, is, of course, working a program. She's going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings and she probably had still some outpatient treatment and all of these kinds of things. She was going to church. She just had a lot going on. Life, she confessed, was hard. But then she said something very insightful and very true. She said, but my life now is way easier than it was when I was using drugs. That was hard. There was no rest. There was no rest at all. But she could find some rest in obedience. There was no rest in disobedience. There was no rest in sin. And Christ offers rest as we come to him, and we repent of sin and confess them and rest in him. And so we also, uh, this is something that definitely plagues our society. I don't know so much in the first century, but we live in a very uh, tense world, right? We are busy. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's, there's just a lot of tension all of the time. And a lot of us tend to go through life kind of white-knuckling it. You know what I mean by that? It's like when you're really gripping onto something tight, when there's a lot of tension, right, your knuckles get white. Um, and I remember uh, in sports, uh, playing baseball, and the coach is telling us, don't white-knuckle it, right? Don't get up there batting all tense, right? And so that's how a lot of us go through life. We go through life anxious, worried, full of tension. Christ offers us rest from that. Come to him. Give him our burdens. Give him uh, our worries and cares and we will have rest in him. And so I highly suspect again that all of us on one level or another can identify with at least one of these aspects of the rest that we receive when we come to Christ, that God offers in him the rest from our works, rest from sinful works, rest from works righteousness, rest just from the tension and anxiety that we often experience in life. We find true rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that Jesus can offer rest? How is it? Who gives him the right to offer such rest? Well, of course, he and he alone has earned that. Jesus himself can offer rest because he has secured our rest, the rest of his people, through his work on the cross. And we see this. Uh, his sacrifice is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, from the Old Testament. And guess what? The Day of Atonement itself was to be a day of rest. Again and again, we see rest as the picture of what God has for his people. The rest of the land, the rest of the Sabbath day, the rest of the Day of Atonement all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so, just a moment. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you do not know the rest that Jesus offers, we beg you to come to your senses and receive the rest that only he can provide. There is no rest uh, in the world's religions. There is no rest in self-effort. There is no rest, certainly no rest in sin. There is no rest at all in anything but our Lord Jesus Christ. And he came and lived the obedient life that you cannot live. He came and died death in God, under God's just wrath in your place to receive the punishment of your sins 
And he now was then raised from the dead on the third day, and he offers rest, the hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so, if you, again, if you are not a Christian today, friend, we call on you and urge you to repent and to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the rest that only he can provide and in hope of eternal salvation. And so then we come to having our author having concluded basically the imper- or excuse me the indicative his argument his laying out of the facts of the scripture in these past several verses we now come to the imperative to the command to the expectation of how God's people are to respond to who he is and what he has done. And so we read in verse 11 here of chapter 4 Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'm sure it's not just me, but there seems seems something paradoxical about hearing strive to enter rest, right? Those don't seem to go together. How is it that we are to enter rest, but we have to strive for it? Well, we should do well here to be reminded that while we, uh, what we, the theologians again would call the now and not yet, that there is a very sense in which by faith we possess rest now. We have it now. But we also must persevere to have full and final rest in the not yet, in the day when Christ returns. Uh, this can be a little hard for us, some of us, uh, to understand, I think. It's hard for me to kind of get my mind around. We want to have very clear distinctions. And so this like, well, am I in this or not, right? Now and not yet. It might be, uh, to make an analogy, if you remember, I don't know how many are into baseball at all in the Seattle Mariners, but on September 30th this year, Cal Raleigh hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth and clinched the playoffs for the Mariners for the first time in more years than I like to remember. So, right? They were in the playoffs. They had it. Now, they celebrated that night. It was a big celebration. They all ran out on the field in a big celebration as if it was, they already had it. They already possessed it. But the truth was, the playoffs didn't start until October 7th. They weren't in the playoffs yet. They had it. It was now, but it was also something that they had to wait on. It was a not yet. In in somewhat of a similar way, we possess rest now by faith. But we also are waiting for rest. Rest will come someday. And we don't quite haven't experienced yet, even though it is clinched, it is secure. We know that in Christ. It is ours, and we can rejoice in it now and experience it now in a certain level, but we yet also wait for the future and that not yet and the true rest that we will have then. And this, in fact, is exactly what we see in God's Word. In Revelation 14... I'm going to read a passage here, and I want us to see the contrast between those who have rest and those who do not have rest, beginning with verse 11. And the smoke of their torment, these are idolaters, as we'll see, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. We see here a reminder of the, the importance of these words that our author is writing to these Christians in the first century and to us. There will one day be a great divide and a great distinction between those who have no rest and those who have rest in Christ. And the way to enter that rest and to have that rest one day is, yes, to believe and possess that rest now, but we are told here, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. We must persevere, keeping the commandments of God and our faith in Jesus. See, many of those to whom the author of Hebrews was writing were under temptation to shrink back, to no longer follow Christ. They had professed to believe. They professed faith, but their faith was in danger of faltering, and they were in danger of falling away rather than continuing to follow Jesus. And that temptation is always with us. It is there in every generation. The, temptation, the particular temptation may look different, and for some, it is the temptation of true persecution, which these Christians were beginning to endure, and maybe our lot as well. But there is always the temptation of some sort. And in fact, many in our day uh, shrink back and cease to identify with Christ's body right? and separate themselves. The writer of Hebrews has much to say about that as well later. Uh, others do not longer any stand for the truth and shrink back in that way. We are in a time when it is not easy to be a Christian. It has never really been easy to be a Christian. But remember that there is only rest in being a Christian. There is no rest outside of Christ, outside of God's will. There is no rest for those who are in works righteousness, those who are in sin. Rest is only in Christ. And may that encourage us to endure, to persevere, to receive that rest to abide in that rest and then to receive the rest on the last day. And as we come to our final two verses here, 12 and 13, which are this particularly 12 is familiar, a well-known verse. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God spoken of here is primarily the spoken word of the gospel. That the, the good news, again, going back to the first two verses in our transition here in Hebrews 4, the good news that came to the wilderness generation that came to this first century Christians, that comes to us, the good news draws a distinction. It's like a sword, a double-edged sword, which was the sharpest instrument known in the ancient world. And it divides, it cuts, it lays open our hearts before God based upon our response. When I was in high school, and many of you did something similar in high school or college, you dissected an animal. I think we did a frog or a crayfish or something. And, and you, you cut the outer to bear the inner, right? To be able to see what's on the inside. 
The gospel does that with us. When the gospel comes to us, it lays bare our hearts before God. How do we respond? Again, who God is and what he has done demands a response from God's people. This is the whole point of the, this argument that the author of Hebrews has made, is to compel a response, a believing and faithful, persevering response from his people. For them and for us in our day. Now, the fact that our hearts are laid bare before God on one level is terrifying, right? If you are anything like me, you know that you do not have a pure heart and that there is still sin in your heart and there is still evil attitudes and thoughts. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we can remember that we have the assurance that God has given us new hearts. If we really believe and if we really trust in Christ, it is because we have a new heart that God has given to us. And so our heart indeed is laid bare before him, but that is a heart that he has given us. We are not hidden from his sight. We are exposed, but that exposure does not have to be terrifying. It can, in fact, be reassuring. It can be a comfort to us. We can find rest in that. In Psalm 139, David writes of how God knows him inside and out. He knows everything about him. David is not terrified by this thought. He finds comfort to know that the Lord God is his God and knows him, knows all about him, knows him inside and out, and still loves him and still rejoices over him and still holds him close. It can be the same for us. I want to read a few verses from Psalm 139 at the beginning, at the beginning and then at the end. We read in verse, beginning with verse 1, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then he concludes and asks God to search him. To look at him. He does not try to hide from God. He has rest in God's promise. And so he comes before him. He says, search me, O God. This is verse, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. There is no peace except in Christ. And while his word comes to us and should produce some level of examination, it can also be a word of great comfort and assurance. That ultimately is what the gospel is to be. It is to be rest, rest for our souls. So as let us rest in Christ and his work, his finished work, resting from our works, remembering that there is indeed still a Sabbath rest, a rest for the people of God, and I pray that we all would abide in it. Let's pray. Lord, Oh, your goodness and your grace is unfathomable, Lord. To think of how desperate we are without God and without hope in the world apart from you. And yet you have condescended, Lord, to love your people. You have loved us in Christ who has secured a great salvation for us, Lord, that provides rest. We pray, Lord, that you in your grace and your mercy would not only give us 
the measure of rest now that we experience, Lord, that it would be real to us, but that you would work in us persevering faith, Lord, that we would stay true to Christ all our days and receive the reward of eternal rest in him, Lord, at death and then at his return and the establishment of his great kingdom, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would hasten this day, and we pray uh, that we would have hope as we look to this Advent season, Lord, that we would remember that hope is a confident assurance, uh, Lord, not just mere wishful thinking, for Christ has secured our hope. In his name we pray. Amen.